You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. When I was in grade school, my dad and I were up in Detroit for a track meet. We thought it would be fun to cross into Canada. Although technically it was my first time I had left the United States, it wasn't until a week after my college graduation that I took my first real international trip. I did a four city stop in Europe and honestly, in a very cliche fashion, I caught the travel bug. I've made a few more trips to Europe, traveled to South America, and expanded my adventures in the United States because there is so many amazing places to see just in our country alone. Although I'm not going to go as far to say that it's a requirement for a happy life, there are so many benefits of making travel a habit. It can be a release from the day-to-day grind that life can force us into sometimes. You meet new people, make unforgettable memories, even improve your communication skills. But what that first trip really did for me was expand my horizons and make me become more mindful of other people's cultures and values. I can confidently say that I'm a more sympathetic and open-minded person because of traveling. You don't have to quit your job today and travel the world, although today's guest would probably have a thing or two to say about that. But I am hoping after this conversation, I've convinced you to pick a spot that you've always wanted to travel to and book that plane ticket. Renee Bruns took this piece of advice to heart. She created a career sabbatical to pursue what we've all wanted to do at one point in our life. Break a Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) You probably didn't see that one coming. Yes, Renee Bruns is now the record holder for the most amount of countries visited in one year in a wheelchair. In 2022, she visited 66 countries, bringing her all-time total to 117 countries, including all seven continents. In this conversation, I challenge her with five common reasons many of us don't travel, and she fires back with reassurance and tangible advice for overcoming these excuses. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with a girl from small-town Ohio turned globetrotting record holder, Renee Bruns. Renee, thanks for taking a blind pitch from me on LinkedIn. I saw your story. You broke the Guinness Book of World Records for the most countries visited in one year in a wheelchair. And you might have to fact check me on this. I want to make sure I have this right. But in 2022, you visited 66 countries. And total, you have visited 117 countries. I don't know if there's an update on that either. And all seven continents. All of this from a girl who grew up in a farm in small town, Ohio, whose life completely changed whenever she got on a plane for the first time to go to New York City. (laughs) So what was the last of the 50 states that you visited? And did you have any like creative map or list where you kept track of all the states that you visited? So your story is dead on. I have no further updates. I have, I'm still at 117 countries. You, You nailed everything. The last state I visited was Maine. Really? And yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre. 
the only reason I visited it is because it was the last state. So my family, I went with my siblings and my mom and we literally got in the car from Ohio and drove for, oh, it was probably 15, 17 hours. We, you know, we stopped along the way. But we literally drove to Maine to spend a long weekend there so that we could say we had been to Maine. I, you know, we had some lobster and, you know, walked along the coast. It was nothing exciting, but that was my 50th state. Your other question on, was there a list? I think, you know, naturally, I grew up in Ohio. We had crossed over the border to Indiana and Michigan, you know, the neighboring state. When I made the goal that I wanted to see all 50 states, I was around 10 years old. And my mom, I think she kind of thought, okay, well, this is a really cool goal. Like, good luck. She can do this in her own adult years. I'm not helping her with this. But over time, we started taking family vacations where we would load up in the family van and pull a camper behind us. And we would camp, literally just find a campground and stay there because it was, you know, cost efficient. We could all go along, work, and we love to be outside running around in the campground. So we would do that. And over time, we started getting to all these different states. And I, I don't know that there was a specific moment, or I don't remember at least the day that we said, well, how many have we been to? But somewhere along that path, you know, we sat down and started writing them out. And just like that, it was like, oh, wow, we've been to, you know, again, I don't remember the number, 23 states. And then the goal became much more achievable once we started realizing we're just naturally visiting new places each year. So let's go after it. And we did. Did your mom take you on all of those? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, It was the whole family. It was the whole family. So my mom, my dad, I have three siblings and me. So there were six of us. We would pile in the van, you know, suitcases, books, snacks, you know, the whole works. There were no iPads or video games at that point in time. So, you know, we would play games in the car and we would just drive and go. Did you play any like the road trip games, like the license plate game? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you have a fan favorite? The license plate game, I really love that one. We would also try the person who found the license plate from the most number of states. That was one we did. Really? That's yeah, fun. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I think we made that one up. So I don't think it's a nuance game. rule. Yeah, yeah, a strange one. I'm sure there were some others that I'm just drawing a we, blank on, but it was I, fun. I, I remember one that we did a whole lot too was the alphabet game where you had to find, you'd start with A and you had to find a word on a sign or somewhere that had the letter A and then Uh you could move to B and then you could move to C and you got to like keep looking for these words. And of course, like you get to X and, and we, you know, Oh, it could be like the second letter for X because that one always took forever. Uh But Uh I remember a couple of letters like Q and Z and a few of those were like always hard to find. And we were always racing between each other to see who could finish the alphabet first. That was a fun one for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like all of this, like, and and the the young listeners on here will be like, you did what in the car? You know, cause like now I'm just on my phone or I'm reading on my iPad or whatever. So bring back some nostalgia for me, but the innocence of those types of things, looking for ABCs. Yeah. I remember in our, we had a 2001 Yukon Denali and it was the first car that we had like the pull down TV that you could have, but Uh we only had two headsets on. So we had one of two options. We could play it on the speaker on the car. But usually if that was the case, like my mom would have to really be into it as well because she would sit in the front seats. But then I have two other siblings too. So there'd be five of us. My dad never, he always just was stuck driving, which sucks. Sometimes my mom would come to the back seat and watch the movie with us, especially if it was Harry Potter. But yeah, if they didn't want to watch it and they were in the front seat, we only had the two headsets. So my brother, my sister, and I would have to debate who would be the odd man out to watch. I have pretty bad motion sickness. So honestly, reading, even scrolling on social media, I don't do very well in the car for a long period of time. 
So more times than not, even nowadays, I'm just left looking outside in wonderlust, <laughs> like kind of enjoying the ride, but it can be kind of boring for me sometimes on road yeah. trips. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I, I do think there's something to be said, though, about the escape from the technology and looking out the window because you're going to see so many beautiful things. And, you know, North Dakota looks very different than the coast of California. And I, I think it's important for us to remember it's okay to look out the window and absorb the scenery. So, of course, you knocked out the 50 states and then you went on this just binge of world traveling. And I really want to spend most of our conversation talking about traveling, especially traveling internationally. I pulled this article and it reads five surprising reasons why Americans don't travel. So I'm going to walk through each of those five reasons and we're going to interweave your story and some commentary from you. And I'm hoping at the end of this you would have done your job right if you've convinced me that although maybe these are valid reasons, they still are not great excuses for why you should avoid traveling. So let's start with number one, which is they don't know where to travel to, which is not a problem for me. The rest of these four, I'm like, okay, I see it. But this seems like maybe a legitimate reason why some people don't travel. They just don't know where to go to. And someone like yourself, who I know you love Southeast Asia, that that is like your your prime destination. And you've also been to crazy places like Antarctica, which that story was so much fun to listen to. But for those that haven't really done any international traveling, those might be pretty adventurous first destinations. So do you have a couple of spots where you've been to that might be low risk and high reward places to travel to? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny when you when you're reading that bullet point, my first thought is it should be flipped around and say where not to travel to because there are far fewer places that are unsafe or, you know, hard to get into and much more of the world is open and free and safe and you can have a great time. But I love Europe and culturally Europe is is very similar to the US or probably the, I should say the most similar compared to other parts of the world. You know, healthcare is very similar. There's going to be some language barriers, but most people in Europe speak English. And it's beautiful. You can go to Italy, Spain, Portugal, all in the same trip. France, you know, there's, there's just so many places in Europe. So it might be a little scary to say, oh, I'm leaving the country to go to Europe. But once you're there, you're going to find that it's a really beautiful place. And the people are incredibly helpful. And it's just an amazing place to be. And you're going to feel very safe. Definitely. I, so of course I've done Canada and Mexico, but my first international trip was a three-stop destination. I think that's like a great way to, you know, just fly over to Europe, pop around three different countries mm -hmm. or three of the major cities. Mm -hmm. My very first city that I went to was Prague and the Czech Republic, which I think is such a great, like if you want a little adventurous, but like, yeah, I want to like make sure I, I'm very capable of doing everything there too. Prague was like, I didn't even mean for it to be, but like a great fan favorite first for mm -hmm. me. And then we did Barcelona, which is like you mentioned, very easy to get around. Lots of things are labeled in English, even though it's Spanish dominant, you can approach people in, in English and they'll help you out. And then I did Paris to leg out that trip as well. Actually, we did a little bit of Southern France, which was way harder because most people did not actually speak English there, which is honestly the next bullet that I want to talk about, which is the second reason. They don't speak the language, which seems to be very fair. I am sometimes worried I've gone down to Ecuador. And as soon as I left Quito in Ecuador, like I was 
pretty much on my own in terms of hand gestures and fumbling through some broken Spanish. Or if I had internet, you can use Google Translate, which is all great. I found that even if you can't speak the language, you can use some of those things to get through where you need to. And you might be lonely here and there, like because you just can't have full conversations with random strangers all the time. But I don't think it's hard to get around, even with a language barrier. Part of your Guinness Book of World Records was that you had to get two signatures from witnesses in each of the countries that you visited, which I <laughs> I bet that is a question itself. Can you recall a story or a moment where you really had to go on a quest to get the signatures from witnesses, especially if there was a language barrier? Yeah, I was in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is a former Soviet country. It borders Russia. Actually, it doesn't border Russia, but it's, it's near Russia. So I was there. They speak Russian and they speak Uzbek. They do not speak English. And because it was a former Soviet country, they don't want their population to know English. So there are very, very few English speakers. If they know English, they learned it on their own fruition. That being said, I use Google Translate as much as I could. But when you go, when you present this document and the, the Guinness World Record, it's a statement that, that is, you know, they have to fill in some blades. It's more like a form. It's, you know, signing, yes, I saw Renee here. And it's all in English. So, and it's a long form. So to go through and translate that and then to explain what I'm doing in a culture where they don't chase Guinness World Records, they're saying, what is a Guinness World Record? We all know what that is and yeah. we think it's wonderful. But they don't know. And then it's in English. And then I'm from the U.S. And they're, they're, they're thinking, am I, is this some sort of legal issue? Am I in trouble with the government? I don't want to get in trouble with the government. What are you asking? So, you know, there's all these hand signals. Google Translate helps tremendously. But I certainly, in that part of the world, I ran into people who simply would look at it, shake their head and say, no, I can't help you. And I'd have to go find somebody else. So wow. it was like incredible persistence. And I got I, I got good at manipulating the words so that they, you know, they were soft and that my message was clear. But if you speak two languages or more, you realize that things don't always directly translate. And that makes it hard to ask for something like a, a signature on a world record that they don't even know anything about. That's hilarious. It was just like getting the signatures always on your like to-do list to every country that you visited then. You always had to like, all right, I'm going to go spend half a day going to ask random strangers to see if someone could be a witness. Yes, totally was. And I often was like, all right, this is the first thing I'm going to do. Not that I wanted to get it over with. It was actually a really rewarding thing to do to go ask a complete stranger in another country hey, will you sign this statement indicating that you saw me here? And this is why. For the, those cultures that understood what the record was, the excitement that these people got from being a part of this journey and this award, you know, there were pictures, they loved it, they wanted to be a part of it. So for those people, it was really rewarding and I loved doing it. But in some of those, those countries with the language barriers and cultural differences, it definitely was a checklist item, if you will. And it's, all right, let's go get this over with because it's, it's going to be painful and I'm, I'm surely going to get some rejection from it. And, you know, that's not fun either. So um, <laughs> you just want to make sure, and you want to make sure you get it while you're still there before you leave the country. That's crazy to me. Did you follow up with people after you got the Guinness Book of World Records, some of the people that were signees? Yeah, yeah. So on the form, one of the things they have to put is their email address so that, you know, Guinness can reach out to them to, to validate it if they need to. I, I don't think they actually do it often, but... 
So I had all of their email addresses. So it was so cool to send them a message afterwards and, you know, say, hey, Very like, cool. I got this and you were part of it. And I mean, you know, this is a team effort for sure. That's so cool. And I love that one of your, probably your favorite thing to do when you're traveling was not try new food or go see the the most prestige tourist attraction, but was to have conversations with locals. Was there a conversation with a local that really left an impression on you? There, oh gosh, there were so many. The one that stands out to most to me when I, when I think of that is this man in Indonesia. He was actually the owner of the guest house I was working in or staying in, a very small guest house, maybe 10 rooms or so. And he would meet me every morning for breakfast and have coffee with me right in the courtyard at the, the guest house. His English was was really good, a little bit broken, but really good. And he told me that his guest house or his hotel had gone bankrupt three times. And I asked him why he continues to reopen it. You know, if it's not successful, you would think that, all right, maybe I need to, to do something else. And he said, I enjoy giving to the people that stay here. I want them to see my country. So we, we continued to have these wonderful conversations and he would buy me lunch. He would buy me breakfast. He would buy me little knickknacks and souvenirs. And I kept thinking in my head, this man has gone bankrupt three times and he's buying me lunch. This, this does not seem like the wisest financial move, but he kept telling me over and over and over, I get so much joy out of seeing people smile and giving Mm. that it makes up for any money I will ever have. And it's, it's a lesson I, I've carried with me. Of course, I don't want to go bankrupt ever in my life and I wouldn't advise that. But just his message of watching people smile and the joy that I get by buying them lunch is more meaningful than anything else is something that I've walked away and said, you know, I want to buy somebody a coffee and that $4 isn't going to break my bank. And it just means the world to people to do those things. So That was probably the most impactful conversation for me just to see his approach on life was so different than mine. That's so cool. Let's stay there actually too, because number three that's coming up here is that they can't afford to travel. And we're both take a lot of pride in being financially prudent and traveling can be very expensive. It is very easy to spend four or $5,000 on a four or five day trip to Europe. As a seasoned traveler, Do you have any hacks to find affordable transportation, let it be planes, buses, or trains? And do you have any other money-saving travel tips? Yeah. So planes are hard because there's only a limited number of airlines in the world. One of the things when I started traveling that I did, I wasn't so picky on where I wanted to go. So if I knew I wanted to go to Europe, I would go into Google Flight. And I would search from Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I live at. And I would leave the, the destination blank. I'd put in the dates that I wanted to go and I would hit search. And it would pop up with all of the locations that were available and the price. So if I knew I wanted to go to Europe and it was $2,000 to go to Barcelona or $800 to go to France, I would go to France because it was cheaper. And honestly, like if you're in Europe, once you're there, you can hop a train and you can get pretty much anywhere. So, you know, having that flexibility to say, this is the part or the area of the world that I want to get to, it opens up some options instead of saying, I want to go to Barcelona. That's, you know, over twice as much as a ticket to Paris. So just think through, you know, there's 
options on how to get to that part of the world. And maybe there were times where I said, I don't really care where I go in the world. I just want to go somewhere I haven't been. And then you're starting to look at the whole world and that can be overwhelming and fun <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I, I love that hack. Typically the trip transatlantic is your most expensive mm-hmm. if you're going to Europe, going from America to Europe. So yeah, if you just are very open about your entry destination, you are right. Even their inner airline transportation is pretty affordable too. You can hop around pretty easily, but of course they have a, a large train system that that bridges a whole lot of gaps between the different countries. So yeah. I definitely think that is a great hack. Any other non-transportation money mm-hmm. tips that you have, housing, food, entertainment, things like that? Yeah, housing and food are two big ones. A couple of things. So if you're open to staying in a hostel, you know, with other people, there there's a couple of ways to do hostels. You can stay in a dorm where there might be eight to 10 other people. It's, you know, bunk beds and you're, you're literally sharing the room with eight to 10 other people. And then you might have a shared bathroom or you usually do have a shared bathroom. Some of them are co-ed. You might have males and females. Some of them would be separated by gender. So you have that option. A lot of those you can get for $10 or less a night in Europe. And it's a really great way to meet people if you're traveling alone and you're, you're like, hey, you know, I want somebody to go see Notre Dame with me. And there you go. You've got people there because they're all in the same boat as you. In the hostels, if you are more of an introvert or you need some space, they also offer private rooms that tend to be significantly cheaper than, you know, a hotel, a Hilton or a Marriott or something. And they're very comfortable. There's this perception that hostels are dirty and not clean and they have bugs and you're going to get disease. And of course, there are going to be some of those, but read the reviews. I use hostelworld.com a lot. And there's reviews. You can, you know, you can filter by all the different things that you need and, and fellow travelers leave reviews there. But don't let the perception that a hostel is, is dirty or bug infested taint your view because I've had some really great experiences in hostels and it's very, very inexpensive. So there's that one. The food, think through your food. If your hostel offers free breakfast, have the free breakfast at your hostel or your hotel. Or, yeah, you know, like because that saves you five, ten dollars. Shop around. I personally don't like eating in a very touristy area. I like to turn off and go down a back alley and kind of turn a few times because it's gonna be more authentic and you're gonna you're gonna have a more realistic price. But I am also very good about any snacks I get or any leftovers. It goes in my bag and it comes with me because I try to avoid buying extra food just to throw it away. Yeah, my girlfriend and I are notorious for finding free food different places or like maximizing free breakfasts. She uh-huh. She's who I travel the most with. And I think she finds a little bit of joy out of it. I'm just a frugal penny pincher sometimes when I travel. And I'd rather spend a good amount of money on a great dinner and then just ruthlessly cut that the convenient food purchases that you need to make just because you're hungry. Uh-huh. But I, I mean, I, I try to experience the countries that I go to or the places that I go to through their food. So I think there's a balance there for sure, right? For sure. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because if you're in Italy and you want to have the best pasta dish, don't deprive yourself of that because you can't do it anywhere else. So you know, to your point, spend a little extra on a dinner. That's part of the experience. It's part of travel. And, and everybody's going to have their own type of travel. As you said, you experience it through the food. So don't limit yourself because of that. For me personally, I'm not a big foodie. So, you know, I can 
grab a bag of pretzels from the airplane that I've been carrying around for a few days and that can be my mid-afternoon snack. But yep. it's also okay to grab a gelato because you want to experience that too. It's mm-hmm. a valid. Back on the hostels, have you done any like couch surfing or I, I'm guessing you've made some international friends too. So maybe you've crashed with international friends. Yeah, I haven't done any couch surfing, mostly because people's homes aren't usually handicap accessible. Yeah, that's fair. And so it gets to be difficult for me. I know a lot of people who have done it and love it. So if you want to do that, try it, you know, see how it goes. If you, you, know, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But very, very inexpensive way of seeing the world and meeting local people. Yeah. Yeah, I've played, I've gone back and forth with potentially setting up a Couchsurfer account. And for those that don't know, you can go to like, I think it's couchsurfer.com. But if you just type in Couchsurfer in Google, you'll find it. Essentially, it is offering a couch or a bed inside your home to people that are traveling through the city. And there's usually no exchange of money. It's really just accommodations. And of course, it's these vagabond you know, travelers that are all kind of supporting each other. And with that in mind, the site is really good about if you opened your home to many, many people and they left reviews for you and that you showed whenever you travel, people are much more receptive to see that you've also returned the favor to. So I think it's kind of a cool idea that's out there. I haven't done it yet, either through the stays or hosting, but I could see myself as I get a little bit older and I get some more space, honestly, <laughs> opening up my my home to some couch surfers. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let me in like you. I have not done it either. I don't have much space to host people, but I, the community that that is involved there, I think, is just awesome. So number four is they don't have the time, which I don't know if this is the one that you're going to agree the most on or the one that probably frustrates you the most. Your story is very interesting. You, of course, took a whole year off to do this traveling. You were very successful in your career and humming at a very, very high level. And I feel like it was probably a hard challenge for you to not only ask for time off PTO or even a short sabbatical, but leave your career and go on this journey and kind of like let essentially close that chapter of your life and and open up a new chapter. Can you talk a little bit about your career sabbatical, why you decided to go that direction versus just asking for some kind of extended PTO and even maybe a little bit of the mechanics of how you went about asking your employer for a sabbatical? Yes. So I'm going to back up a few years pre-sabbatical. So I was working in insurance and I had 15 days of PTO. So that's, that's three weeks. I had done a ton of traveling before I went on my sabbatical. I usually did anywhere from two to three international trips a year. But with that limited amount of PTO, it's hard to get to Asia and back in one week's time because you're, you're, you know, it's a lot of travel. So you're, you're losing two days of travel and then you get there, you really only have five days to see your destination and you're jet lagged, you're tired, you know, you're, you're, you're really just like, you're, you're on the go and you get back and then you're exhausted from vacation and thrown right back into work. One of the things that I did to optimize my time while I was working, I always bumped my vacation up against a holiday. So I joke that I haven't spent Thanksgiving in the United States for the past 10 years. Outside of the pandemic, I think that's true. I I didn't because I always got those extra two holidays. It's such a good time to travel. You got those four days right there between Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then sometimes a half day on on Wednesday too. Exactly, exactly. So 
you have to be creative to say, is it important for me to be in the United States with my family or is going to Vietnam more important? Often I would take my family with me. (laughs) Just have to get creative. But bumping it up against the holiday has always helped me. You know, same thing with Fourth of July, Memorial Day. You know, if you can be gone over Christmas and New Year's, that's a great time. I, I usually don't travel during that time. But that was that was how I did it before the sabbatical. When I got to the point where I was saying I'm ready to take a sabbatical off, I was feeling really burnt out. It was post-pandemic. Lots of political things were going on. Everyone listening knows exactly what happened in the past three years. I don't need to <laughs> give you a summary of that. But I, I was saying I really need a break and I want to do some traveling where I can go and be in the time zone where I'm not constantly trying to stay awake all day long so I can see things. And I wanted to be able to go and really be present instead of trying to rush through every day to get to see things just so I could turn around, go back home and be exhausted. And I also, you know, I wanted to go see as much as I could. So the company I was working for did not offer sabbaticals. That was made very clear. I knew that from other employees, other conversations. So there wasn't really an opportunity for me to go and say, hey, I'm interested in taking off an extended period of time. I, I knew what the answer would be. It was a very clear it was a clear policy that the sabbaticals weren't a thing. So I personally made the decision, you know, with the support of my family and my loved ones, but personally made the decision to resign, leave the company completely, take the risk that if I, when I leave, I'm going to come back and not have a job. I'm going to have to go through, you know, that soul searching, that career searching, if that's what I choose to do. But I'm going to leave and I'm going to go enjoy this and there will be a complete separation. This is kind of a twofold question and, and relating to the bullet point that you just read. There is enough time. You're going to be tired. You're going to fight through it. The younger you are, the easier it is. And, you know, get on that airplane, enjoy it, get get over to Europe, walk around. You're going to be fine, you know, and then come back. If you decide you want to take a sabbatical and you think it's something your employer might consider, have the conversation. So go to your boss and say, hey, this is a dream of mine. This is a goal of mine. I want to take off three months, six months, nine months, whatever it might be. How can we make this work? There's a lot of, when you do research on sabbaticals, there's a lot of types of sabbaticals. There's paid, there's unpaid, there's partially paid. You know, you gotta, you gotta be flexible, but I think for many people, knowing they have that career and that job when they come back is you can go on the trip and not have that stress hanging over your head of what am I going to do when I get back? I'm in that space a little bit right now. You know, what am I gonna do? My sabbatical's coming to an end. I'm not so worried about it, but for many people, that is a, a safety blanket. So I think just having an open dialogue with your employer and saying, this is where I'm at. These are some of my life goals. Is this possible? And at the end of the day, they might say no, but then you have that information and you can decide what you want to do. I think that's a good line of thinking. I also took a career sabbatical similar to yours too. I wasn't temporarily leaving an employer. I left an employer with the intention of taking this time off and then thinking about what I wanted to do whenever I came back. I think it is a great idea for people that might be in that place, can financially afford to take some time off, give yourself that that opportunity to have an extended sabbatical, vacation, whatever you want to call it, and go do whatever you want to do with it. I did not do an extensive amount of traveling. My sabbatical happened in January 2020, so I only had about two months before pretty much everything got locked down, but I really spent some time on a project that I've always wanted to do, which is this podcast. And if I did not have that six months of really focused time on this podcast, I don't know if I would still be having those conversations now. So of course, 
there is the opportunity to travel out there. And that's our conversation today. But you can spend your sabbatical starting a business, working on a professional development project, taking some time off and enjoying it with your family, becoming a new parent, all of these great reasons why it might be a good time for you to take a career sabbatical, not only just being refreshed and energized and open-minded about what might be the next step in your career, which is kind of where you're at. Yeah, it is. And I think it's I think it's really important for for everyone to understand that as you go through your career, we decide our culture and our culture, we decide what we're going to do with our lives, what our career is going to be when we are you know, 18, 20 years old. So in the first, you know, what, 25% of our lives, 20%, if we live to be 100, we decide what we're going to do. And we're it's crazy. We're so young. And we should be allowed culturally to make some changes and say, mm. all right, I did this for 15 years and now I'm really interested in this. I talk on this thread all of the time. So I'm invited on podcast or speaking opportunities and they're always asking me, what would I have done differently in my tw- if I was 20 years old or what would I tell my 20-year-old self? And the thing I think I wish I would have been able to tell, I mean, the learning lessons, you just got to go through them. But the biggest thing I really wish I would have understood at 20 is that you don't need to graduate and have your whole entire life planned out, especially your whole career planned out. You should be spending your 20s in professional curiosity, trying different things, seeing what you like. That is exactly what the first decade plus of your career should be. And you should also allow yourself to to switch. Maybe a job or career served you for a couple of years, but it's no longer serving you. Don't beat yourself up on it and try to make something a career for 40 plus years. Do something else. Life is so short and there are so many ways you can get paid. There are so many ways you can find purpose and fulfillment. You should allow yourself to to enjoy some of that serendipity, I think. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think, and, and this is, I think it's very true. I, and I heard this from a mentor, but planning is a very important part of the process of life. You know, putting together a plan. This is when I'm going to retire. This is when I'm going to have children. You know, this is what my career is going to look like. And you can put together a thousand different plans and the reality of what happens will never follow any of your plans exactly. <laughs> it, it, and it, it's an important part of the process because it's how we get to where we are. But accepting that you're going to put together the plan and what actually happens is going to be very different is liberating, is scary, and empowering all at the same time. Honestly, I've gotten to the place that feels somewhat liberating, knowing that, of course, I can set the goals that I have for the next decade of my life or where I kind of like this wishful thinking or this like high level. Uh But once again, now that I'm 29 and I have a little bit of history behind me, I can like look back at my 19-year-old self and be like, Hey, 19-year-old self, would you even imagine that you would be a podcaster right now, that you would have a business around podcasting, that you would be doing this with your life right now? And the answer is no. So I can't assume that my 29-year-old self has got to understand what my 39-year-old self, where they're going to be at that point in time too. So I I don't know. I kind of just let it go with, of course, you got to steer your life too. You can't just like let it happen or else... You're going to wake up one day and your life is not going to be what you wanted it to be. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, read, educate yourself, work hard, you know, save some money, all of the, take care of your health. All of those high level things are very important. But if your goal is to run a marathon and you only get to a half marathon, well, you still ran a half a marathon and you can still continue to work towards that half marathon or... Maybe through that process, you decided you really like to cycle instead, and you're still taking care of your physical health. So take care of the different aspects of your life, but 
allow yourself the flexibility to to veer and, and you know go different directions if it feels right. And let's put a bow on on number four, which is if you forgot because we went on went on this great tangent, <laughs> it is that they don't have time or we don't have time essentially. And I remember you talking about the one thing that you continuously heard from people whenever you were leaving your job was, oh, I, I would do that if only I was younger. And you heard that time after time after time. And you heard it from 30-year-olds. You heard it from 60-year-olds. You heard it from everybody and anybody, everybody thinking that they were too old to take this chance and to go do something different with their life. And I, I, I'm i guessing that you would agree with the statement, you're never too old to do whatever you want to do. Like yep. if you want to go travel now, go travel now. If yep. you're 55, whatever. If you're 25, cool, awesome. Go live life how you want to live it, right? Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. And I'm I'm 39 years old. I find myself in hostels sometimes with with 19 year olds, and I think, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? I'm like way <laughs> too old for this. But then it's like, all right, I'm in Italy. I don't even care. I'm just, you know, I'm gonna have fun. So you've, you've got to remove the the age factor, and you can have big dreams no matter how old you are. So let's open up the fifth surprising reasons why Americans don't travel. This one, I feel like we're also going to have a whole lot to say about. And that is because number five is they are afraid to travel. And I feel like this is somewhat valid. The unknown is always a little bit scary. We talked about the language barrier. That also puts another wrinkle in all of this. But if we've never been somewhere and all we have to think about that place is what we've heard about through media and the news and other, you know, small touch points that we have, like the Middle East is, is one where I'm guessing you changed your mind about, I heard you've talked about it before that it's a beautiful place and that people are really great and nice and that they realize that, yeah, our countries might have some conflict right now, but this is the government's issue. This is not everyday normal people issue and we're still going to support each other. Did you have any thought though? Once again, going back to being afraid to travel, did you give any thought to the fact that not only are you a solo female traveler, but you are a solo female traveler in a wheelchair? Yeah. What happens if someone just like came up, pushed you out of your wheelchair and took your wheelchair? That was my number one fear when I left to go see the world when I was on my own. And I, what I would say about fear is it is a natural response to keep us safe. So when you study anything about fear, fear is built into all of us because it's a protective mechanism to make sure we are safe. So if you're venturing out into any part of the world and there's not a little bit of fear, you probably need to check yourself. Now, the spectrum of fear can be very small, very big, you know, somewhere in the middle. I was petrified when I went out because of, to your point, the wheelchair. What if they take it? What if I get somewhere and I can't get up the flight of stairs and there's no elevator or I'm a female. What if a man comes along and tries to assault me? All of my, the list goes on and on. I think it's important that you recognize that you're going to have some fear, fight through it and say, all right, this is here for a reason, but is it rational? Is it real? And how do I overcome it while still protecting myself? For me, once, once I got to Indonesia was where I went when I, the very first time I left the country by myself, that's the first country I went to. And I was, I was scared to death. I got there, I had hired a driver to bring me from the airport to the hotel. It was pretty late at night. So I really wanted to make sure there was someone who could drive me. 
And as soon as I saw him and saw the way he behaved towards me, the way he treated me with very limited English, I realized I was going to be okay. What do you mean by that? He was polite. He was courteous. His mannerisms made it very clear he was there to protect me and keep me safe. And, you know, he was not a security guard or anything like that. He was simply driving me to the hotel. But just the way he shook my hands, you know, he wasn't overly affectionate. He handled my wheelchair very safely and and respectfully, putting it in his car, helped me with my bag, and was just very, very courteous to me. And it made me feel safe. And then he drops me off at the hotel and the employees there are the same. You know, this mutual respect, this very caring, we're looking out for you. I come out the next day and they're there ready to greet me. They know my name. So I started to realize that the people in most parts of the world very much want me to enjoy their country and their culture. And to your point earlier, there are some political systems that they don't get along. But when you sit down and you start talking with local people, they recognize that it's their government against our government. And at the base of all of humanity, the majority of people are very much the same and very much alike. And we're all in it together. And when I say we're all in it together, I mean, we're all in life together. We're all in this earth rotating around and we all have to look out for each other regardless of what part of the world we live in. Yeah, I love that your biggest takeaway was that there are a thousand times more good people than bad people. And it seems like that just happens all throughout your travel journey. Continuously. Everywhere is not as wheelchair accessible as the United States. And maybe people are surprised to hear that. Maybe they're not. But getting over a curb or getting into the bathroom at a restaurant, things like that. I think you mentioned many times that people would just know exactly what to do. They could help pick you up, know exactly where to where to lift your wheelchair, things like that. And people are people are kind like they are. by default. They are. They are. They really, really are. And to your point, it was one of my biggest takeaways. It has reshaped my view of humanity and, and not just internationally, but even domestically. I think it's so often for us, or at least me, I should speak for myself, but I very much have this defensive mechanism on it. I walk down the street, really, you know, there's not a lot of, hey, good day. How are you? And I've, I've become much more just, you know, those kind words really go a long way. And I'm seeing people through a different non-judgmental lens that I think I had built up over time just living in the environment that I had been. So it's been a really great experience for me. Well, I think you did your job in this conversation. I definitely now have the itch to go do some international traveling. It's been a couple of years for me. COVID put a wrinkle in a few of that. And I always make the excuse that I don't have the time because there's a million reasons why I could be back here doing something else. But I'm really excited to get back into traveling. And it's been a pleasure having a conversation with you I want to round the conversation out, of course, where people can find and learn more about you. You have a blog out there. You, you're actually doing some coaching that's coming up in the future. So can you just take a minute and, and talk a little bit about people want to know Renee or want yeah. to stay connected with Renee? Where, where can they go? Absolutely. So ReneeBruns.net is my webpage. There's a link to my blog there with lots of travel stories and some guidance there. I will be building out ReneeBruns.net over the next few weeks as I end my sabbatical and get ready to launch my coaching business here in the future. Awesome. So my final question for you, Renee, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? This is such an ironic question and the timing is so perfect because I was having this conversation with my family a few weeks ago about, you know, a class that we all thought we should teach in college. But 
I'm going to feel a little bit heavy and maybe a little unrelated to travel, but I think it does come back full circle. And the, the class that I would, would teach, and I don't know that I would teach it myself, but I would love for college students to have a course on mental health education. Mm-hmm. And that course can include all sorts of things from how to deal with grief, how to deal with loss, how to deal with navigating your career, how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with depression how to deal with overcoming fear so that you can maximize your potential, which is how it comes back whole circle to the travel that you can do those big dreams. But I look at our society and we have, when I went to college and when I went through elementary school and high school, I had to take a physical education class. So classes on how to keep my body healthy. When I look at our brain, it is the most powerful organ that we have in our body. It can control so many things. And I just don't feel like we're giving it enough attention to maximize the potential of every young adult coming into this world. And I think if we could give every young adult the tools to navigate their mental health, the potential of this country and this world is exponential, almost in a scary way that it's like, wow, there is so much potential in so many people that just need help navigating how to stay healthy mentally. And I think if we can give students that at a young age, it could just expedite and and propel their careers and their lives forward in such phenomenal ways. Mic drop. Let's leave it there. Uh, Renee, what a beautiful conversation. I'm so glad we got connected. I feel like we're probably going to be friends for, for, for life now. I, you have such good energy every single time that I talk to you. So thank you so much for once again, taking a a random LinkedIn message and, and turning it into this awesome conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun. Man, guys, Renee, that was such a fun conversation. As I mentioned, this was a total LinkedIn DM random request. I saw her, actually, I think my friend Dylan sent me a post from Tony, her significant other. And I was like, yes, this is definitely a story that I want to cover. I'm a big believer in the power of traveling and what it can do for you, especially in the personal development lens. Her whole story about how she had to go about getting signatures for the Guinness Book of World Records really blew me away. She also has this amazing story about going to Antarctica. We didn't even get into that conversation, but I highly recommend that you go check her out. Once again, Brene Bruns, Dot net. I'll have that in the show notes too. Flip the show notes open and uh, summer's upon us. So would love to hear what's happening in your travel adventures this summer. Send us a message on Instagram. We are T-S-I-R pod, or you can check out our website. We also have a contact form there that goes straight to my inbox. That is T-S-I-R podcast.com. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together. Mm-hmm.